Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Intervention, Crystal Spring, Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Fibro Animal Health, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today we're joined by John Carr to talk about China, ASF, and the future of swine farming. How are you doing today, John? Very well indeed, very well. I'm excited to talk with you about this topic. I was able to meet you over in Australia, and it sounds like you're over in Vietnam and learning some really interesting things that we'll talk about here today. But before we get started, could you talk to us a little bit about what inspired you to work in animal agriculture? What's your background? Why are you here today? Well, in in some respects, it's an interesting journey. My father is actually uh, an engineer, uh, works in the Air Force. Um, So one could argue zero agricultural background. (laughs) Um, My great-great-grandfather was a hedge coachman. But uh, you're looking at 1820s or something. Um, so, and but my grandmother always liked animals, and I've always liked animals, um, which I think is a key to being a veterinarian. Um, one of those kids where the cows come up to the come to the field and this sort of thing, and I would feed the cows. <laughs> but then, anyway, we find ourselves um, we get posted because we're in, in. I'm an army kid, typical. Um, when my dad's in the raft, but yeah, typical army kid. I mean, 65 homes. Yeah, I was going to say, how many times you move? You said 65? 65 homes. I, I, I keep wanting to be older, have less homes than I'm old. Um, and I class in a, a house as a home as anything more than six months. So you have to do the maths. I mean, um, so yes, I'm used to moving. But it's not unusual for kids who grew up in the military to uh, always be on the move. So anyway, we find us... Yeah, I would say, if you're moving that often, just a quick tangent here, do you just not buy a lot of stuff? Do you just learn to live on, on like, because moving all of the stuff is half of, if not all of the challenge. But you, you learn to do it. I mean, the, when I move, the, the big issue is the, the movers are always, you have how many books? <laughs> you seriously want to move all these books? And I'm like, well, I've left the novels. I'm just leaving my pig books. <laughs> <laughs> And they do, they do, um, they go, oh, these are so heavy. And I'm going, well, it is just books. <laughs> so I'm, my books are moved. Um, so anyway, we find ourselves in, uh, in Yorkshire, uh, and I'm about 10. Um, and then, uh, the owner of the farm comes down to oh, 10, 11. So it's, I remember it was about August and, uh, we moved into this village in the spring. And then Mr. Pexton came down the village and he said, is John ready? Me mum's like, ready for what? <laughs> and he's like, he has two hands and two feet. He's a boy. And my mum, I mean, this is, this is 60, 70 anyway. Me mum's like, yes. He says, well, there's potatoes, there's peas, there's the crops to get in, you know. You're a village boy, lad, get on. 
So my first job as such, <laughs> 11 years old, was um, picking potatoes um, in, the, in the field. And then nice. they rapidly found that I actually, unlike an Iowa boy, uh, I actually wasn't good with machinery. Um, so they, they found me not, it was not a good idea to put me on the tractor. <laughs> um, but I had a thing about the animals. So this particular farm, um, big for its day, I've always lived on big farms. Um, so we had 250 sows, which for the 70s in England was an enormous farm. Um, and uh, you could get, grow up teething pigs and tailing yeah. them and castrating them and feeding them. And then by the time you're 14, you're an assistant manager at the weekends. Uh, I think that was a con. I think they probably just didn't want to do the weekends. Um, but anyway, you, you're 14. And in, in truth, the farm always paid me. Um, in England, there is a, what's, uh, there's an agricultural wages board. This comes from, I don't know, 1700s or something. I mean, it's oh, a really? very old concept. But the, the, the wages are set. So when you're 14, you get this much an hour. When you're 15, oh, you get... Wow. You know, oh, no, so it's all... So, no matter what I, job... Um, no, I think it probably doesn't matter what job because you just, you're an agricultural laborer. Um, so, um, you know, this is to, to the kids were, it was all about not abusing the children. I mean, that was yeah. part of it. I mean, that presumably, um, and it's just, it's just, it's just, just a carryover. Did it work? Well, I obviously, I got paid. <laughs> I, I did. It's not quite joking. So I must've been, when I was younger, I was quite an entrepreneur. So when I was 12, um, I was actually paid on rats. So if I, how many rats I killed. And I remember I must have been short of money because I halved the tails. So I tried to give them twice as many. I had to send the tails. I gave them twice as many tails, and I just got smacked around the head and told not to be so stupid. <laughs> the person was not quite so naive. And you know, tail had to have, it had to be full-length tail, not not two halves. He was not going to pay me twice. <laughs> so it was a lesson for a 12-year-old to not try and cheat the boss. Um, but the nice thing about it is that, so I ended up being a veterinarian, um, but I probably learned more about pigs in the first 10 years, not through vet school. And, yeah. and in some respects, I might even argue that possibly a slight difference between myself and a lot of my colleagues. So I'm a, a veterinarian who grew up as a stockman. Mm -hmm. I'm not a veterinarian who grew up as a farmer's son. Mm -hmm. So I, so I know. So when boys, when, when the guys do things on farms, I look at them and I go, no, you're just lying to me. You know, and they go, no, how do you know? I said, because I tried the same lie when I was 15. You know, if you're going to cheat, <laughs> cheat, but cheat better than I cheated. You know, you know, you no, can't just good. make all these numbers. Just, you know, so you see through the numbers. Um, whereas sometimes the farmer's sons uh, can be bought off because they, they, they don't see, they don't see what the guys are cheating. Um, I mean, what, what do pig farmers, what do stockmen want to do? They want to have a cigarette around the back of the farm. They don't want to be pressure washing. <laughs> <laughs> You do. You, growing up as a stockman, you do understand absolutely the motivators and 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 the conversations that people have on a daily basis. And it, it is a problem I have with today's vets. Um, and I've got no problems with growing up in a city, becoming a pig vet, become you know. Um, but 
the young vets still need to learn how to work on the farm. So with my vets, what I try to get them to do is I actually get them to, you know, say, right, at the weekend, find a tame farm. Somebody likes you. Go and do some pressure washing. Go and breed some sows. Go and barrow some sows. Because the modern vet never gets to do any of that. No. You know, I mean, the modern vet may be fantastic at doing a post-mortem, may be fantastic at reading, um, uh, you know, a sequence of purrs and everything else and picking the vaccine. But I still think that the modern vet needs to, uh, she needs to understand when she's walking the farm, what are the jobs? What are, yeah. you know, and so one of yeah, the and things when you're, I, when you're waiting on gilts to breed and you're, you're doing it the long handed way, what are people talking about? Right. What know, are those conversations that naturally take place yeah. when you're working on a sow farm? And you need to be, to be part of that conversation. You know, and if your entire, I just think that sometimes the vet training is, is almost too science and not enough um, social version. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, when you think about why did I become a veterinarian, it, it wasn't, it wasn't because um, take dad owned a pig farm. What was, uh, what did happen was the fact that I was given the opportunity. And again, I mean, how many 11 year olds are allowed to wander around? You know, a two, three, four thousand sow farm nowadays. I mean, it just isn't. It just you can't health anymore. and safety wouldn't you wouldn't allow you. You can't. When uh, I mean, when real quick, when I was when I was five, six, and seven, I'd get paid to take all of the gate rods from the sow farms, pile them on pallets, and that was how I got the little things that I wanted at that age. And yeah, rode rode in the feed wagon, all that stuff, just finding little jobs. But I, when I was eight or so. The insurance policy that the South Farm had to take on said I couldn't work in another South Farm till I was sixteen. Yep. I could do grow finish and other things, but I couldn't go in a South Farm until I was sixteen. Yeah. And and I I I don't know. I, I, I think it's a retrograde step. I I think I think the and the trouble is you become um well, one of my other little problems. So at university I would teach animal science, I teach animal handling. And I know my head of department was very, you know, what are you doing that for? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I enjoy moving pigs. And he goes, yeah, but you need to be doing research, John. And I said, yeah, but I want the first-year kids to realize that this is actually important. Mm. And if, it's, if, it, if the clinician thinks it's, you know, because the kids will all look up to you and they can think, oh, I'd love to be what John does and everything else. But, you know, if the kids see that the professor thinks that moving animals well is an important task. Yeah. Uh, but I just think that, you know, I don't know. I, I think if you can get, particularly young vets and young animal scientists, if, if they can get to handle pigs as quickly as possible, you, you fall in love with them. Um, we don't need that many to actually fall in love with them, but because you either love them or hate them with pigs. I mean, and poultry is the same. Um, but the industry desperately needs bright kids who really just love pigs. Um, and as long as we can get a few of them a year, the industry's got a great future. And it's hard anymore to find individuals that have been able to have that experience growing up yes. because everything is so hard to get into anymore. You can't yes. just drive down the road and see a pig or work with a farmer anymore. And I mean, maybe grow finish. You can do a lot of stuff as a younger kid and grow finish if find the right contract grower, but sow farms. No, but sow farms are difficult. No. I mean, I mean, even as a professional vet, 
I mean, I look after a number of boar studs, but you can ask the average vet, there's no way they're going to be allowed even onto the boar stud. And for me to look after like 20 or 30 is like unheard, you know, is unheard of. I mean, you know, but, but you, you know, even some of the top swine vets we have in the country, they, they won't be able to get into boar studs for biosecurity reasons and, and yeah. everything else. And, but then that, all that experience has been then lost. I mean, you, you know, you don't, you don't work with them. How can you get it? How can you get used to them? Absolutely. So what anyway. are you doing today? Right. To, to kind of talk oh, well, about to, you're, well, you're in Hanoi. What are you up to today? Yeah. Uh, so today what we're doing is actually talking to the manufacturers of the uh, ASF vaccine, um, trying to figure out how I can place the vaccine on some of my clients' farms um, that I have in uh, Vietnam. Um, Gotcha. ASF is, has decimated the Vietnamese industry. Um, I mean, it, it's not a lesson that the United States needs to learn, but we do not need this virus into, the, into North America. Um, no. It's not about the United States. I mean, it's the whole of North and South America. I appreciate we have it in Haiti and Dominican Republic. Um, I mean, we've had it in South America before and got rid of it, but... We don't need it. In, we don't need it at the moment. It's not ever. Um, now, the problem with African swine fever, you've got a very, very old virus, um, very stable virus, 24 different types of this very old virus from Africa. The local pigs in Africa are immune to it. But the European pigs, the Scofra, never met this virus. And so when the British started to bring pigs into Central Africa, um, to their horror, they died. When they brought their horses into Africa, they died. That was uh, sleeping sickness. Huh. But their pigs died of African swine fever. And, um, and it, they died, they called swine fever because the, in Europe we had classical swine fever, as we had in the States. Um, and um, the, the symptoms were almost identical. But it was something to do with Africa, so it became African swine fever rather than okay. classical or hog cholera. Um, so anyway, in Africa... It is probably, it, I've done quite a lot of work and been lucky enough to do a lot of work in both South Africa and also in like Uganda and Kenya. But the virus seriously limits the African industry. Um, you get farms up to 100 sows, but to invest in two or 3,000 sows and then lose them all is almost too much and is so the, the likelihood just is the likelihood of getting ASF if you're running a uh, large sow farm in Africa just about as likely as getting PERS in southern Minnesota, oh, yeah. northern Iowa? Okay, yes. okay, yeah. that does that does maybe open... maybe a little bit less, but yes, I mean effectively yes. Um, okay, so you're almost guaranteeing it within five years you're going to get it. Um, yes, I mean yeah. the big the big advantage of African swine fever is it only transmits three meters. Whereas PERS, you're looking at a kilometer, yeah. you know, one mile or so. So with PERS, I can virtually guarantee it. Um, you've got to be, you've got to be, you've got to know what you're doing. But the, the reality is of, um, I don't want to use the word peasant farming, but because it's below family farming. I mean, yeah. when, when you've got farms that have no biosecurity, um, then in Africa, you've got almost 100% chance that within five or six years, you're going to get African swine fever. 
What, what if you built a cell farm like we have them in the States or, or elsewhere where you had all the biosecurity parameters? Do you think you'd still get it in Africa? Is it that prevalent? So some of the farms that I have in South Africa, the nucleus farms we have there, they can stay free. Okay. Uh, so I can farm it. Um, um, one of the other slight problems in Africa is, is there is a tick, and that tick will is able to uh, transmit the virus. Mm. So if the so you've got two, you've got multiple ways of can get into your farm. Now, fortunately, everywhere else in the world, this tick has not gone with the pigs. So everywhere else in the world, we're basically just looking at pigs to pigs. Okay. So for example, and from an American point of view, um, if 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 ASF got into the states, it would be a devastation. But if I if ASF got into the states, actually, do I expect the industry to be affected? Probably not, actually. Really? Which might surprise a few people. Um, yeah. So the example would be Germany. So the Germans have a lot of um, wild pigs. The wild pigs are being decimated by African swine fever. But if you look at the number of farms that have swine, African swine fever, it's almost none. Mm, okay. Because by, as long as you've got biosecurity. The fear that I have in the United States and Canada, you have almost you have no perimeter fences. You're very you're very open farms. Um, it was always a shock. Uh, I shouldn't laugh really. So I lived in lived in um, in Raleigh Durham, and um, I mowed up to my perimeter. There was no fence, but I mowed, and my neighbor's standing there with two beers, and he's watching me, and he goes, "You must be British." I'm going, well, okay. I said, why is that? He says, everybody else would have just mowed the whole thing, John. <laughs> but you are cutting the line, you know, harping leaves, you know. <laughs> and he gave me a beer and he said, how about just mowing the whole thing, boy? <laughs> <laughs> I go, yeah, I could do. He says, well, I'll, you mow it this week, I'll mow it next. <laughs> it was just because I remember he was just sitting there. He brought two stools out and he just, two, just two stools. I remember he brought two stools, two beers, and himself. And then he watched me mow. Right along the edge, just but not not half an inch over. That's funny. Just, just right along my edge, and he let me he let me mow it. And then he then he came over with a beer, and he said, "You must be British." <laughs> <laughs> but but the problem is that when you've got farms that are that open, the wild pigs, and you've got three meters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the wild pigs can get within three meters of your farm, and you're stuffed. No, that's a good point. And so when you think about ASF and, and you know, I'd like to talk about biosecurity as you've seen it. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the vaccines and then we'll actually get into China and talk about what's going on there because there's a lot of cool things that we could talk about. But to start off, just ASF biosecurity, what is seemingly working or what's best case outside of perimeter fencing? Perimeter fencing. That's okay. Perimeter fencing. Isn't it as simple as just give yes. yourself yes. perimeter fencing? Perimeter fencing. Okay. So the way that I try to teach it is you want an air gap. Nothing can come to the buildings. And so the, dilemma, the, 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 the development is to have the perimeter fencing, but we actually now have two perimeter fences. Mm. So we have the perimeter fence around the farm, 
which might be nearer than your concept. But we have a perimeter fence around the farm. Then we put a secondary perimeter fence outside or inside, depending on who owns the land around the farm. But then no outside vehicles can come to the farm. So you have, so you have feed bins on the outside of the farm. So the feed trucks come and feed the feed the feed bins. Then the in, an internal truck comes and moves the food from the feed bins through to the farm. Okay. When you export, you take pigs on and off. You have to transship them. Oh, interesting. So you move, so you move the pigs from the buildings to the edge of the farm. Then the outside truck comes to the edge of the farm, picks up the pigs. But it means that the outside farm didn't touch the outside um, truck didn't touch your your building. Hmm. See the way we do it at the moment, you know, you have the, you put the load out down, lower the ramp, truck comes along, up at the back of the ramp. We have nice biosecurity because we think the purrs and mycoplasma, and you run the pigs off. You don't enter the truck. He doesn't enter yours. But the trouble is, your ve- the vehicle has come too close to the farm. Yeah. Okay. So what I do is we have a, we transship it. So I have my own vehicle that comes to the building. That trundles off, and it might only be fifty meters, but obviously the more the better. Um, so with my nucleus farms in like Ukraine, I mean it could be a mile away because I have I have a lot of land. Oh, okay. Um, you know, so then the the truck with the pigs on goes to the transshipping area. Then we transship the pigs onto the onto the truck that. That, that takes them to the slaughterhouse or takes them to the to the guilt sales or whatever. <laughs> and then the internal truck is then washed. But it doesn't have to be completely biosecure because it's never gone anyway. It's, it's yeah. just the edge of the farm. But the bottom line is we've found is that the um, truck is a, is a risk. Mm-hmm. And having this air gap, um, it just makes it easier to imagine having, a, having an air gap around the farm. So I call that a gray zone. So you've got the green zone, which is where the on-farm, you have the gray zone, which is this air gap, and then you have the red zone, which is everywhere else in the world. Okay. Um, now, we've farmed, I mean, I've farmed pigs in um, Ukraine 10, 12 years now. No issue. Hmm. And we've had ASF within 50 meters of the farm. Is but How do you handle employees... How do you handle employees with their vehicles? Uh, they're all off. They, they stay outside. They stay on the red zone. And then so they, when go, they walk uh, in, is so there like they an walk extra in, showering? And so, well, in my, in my nucleus farms, they take two showers. Okay. okay. So the shower at the outside perimeter and then the shower on the inside perimeter. Uh, and there'd be two sets of clothes, two sets of boots. The one thing I would insist, and it's something the States could do tomorrow, all visitors, all employees, visitors, the owner washes their hands with soap and water before they enter the farm. Mm. And we actually have security guys who, who actually, and use a nail brush. Um, and then, and most of my farms now, they will actually at that point, because we've now got a stop point. So the guys come to the farm, wash their hands, and then they'll, and they'll change their shoes. Then they walk through the gray zone in farm shoes with washed, clean hands. And at that point, then they'll change the shoes again. They'll have a shower and then they'll go onto the farm. So you could Very have two showers. You see what I mean? 
Yeah, or yeah, yeah. You have, but the one thing we have found, and particularly in the states, um, well, I say the states, states and Canada, I'm, I'm blurring the two. But yeah. when you've got people who hunt, and if you've got guys who are hunting pigs, we've got, or or it could be just you've been to the butchers. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I work on the assumption that ASF is in the country. Okay, I, I know it's, but I yeah. just assume. So when it, when so you have to assume that whoever whoever enters the farm could have meat products on their hand. And the beautiful thing about ASF is it killed with soap and water. Okay, it's actually very it's actually very resistant virus, except for the fact that it's killed with soap and water. Makes it that, that's You're interesting. A little bit. Um, so yeah, so for instance, it actually can. Resist pH three can resist pH eleven. COVID won't won't resist pH seven point two and six point eight. I mean, COVID is very easy to kill, but African swine fever is quite resistant to kill. So, but bleach kills it, and uh, you know, acids kill it. But it is it is quite resistant to to fluctuations in pH. But it has a capsule. It has an envelope, just like COVID. And if you destroy that envelope, then you seriously weaken the virus. And that envelope's fat. And well, how do you get rid of fat? Soap and water. You don't actually need much more. Interesting. So we've talked a bit about biosecurity. I actually had Dr. Adrian Balaban uh, from Romania come on and talk about mm-hmm. an outbreak in itself. Yeah. But I'd love for you to talk yeah. about the vaccines. You're right there with them. Can you talk about all the different types of vaccines that have been coming out and the challenges and the opportunities that have existed within those? Yeah, Adrian's a good guy. We work together as well. Um, great guy. Um, yeah, great guy. Uh, terrible problem at, at home in Romania. Just uh, quite devastating. So the bottom line with vaccines, we don't have one. Um, we've been looking for 40-odd years, and we still don't have one. Um, as I said, African swine fever really has stopped Africa having a large pig industry, like almost the rest of the world. Um there are developing farms in South Africa, but uh, you're looking at a lot of investment. Um, so the bottom line is that we don't have a vaccine, um, but there are vaccine um, candidates coming on stream. Um, and obviously we are very excited about these, uh, but they, they really are yet to be proven. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm here, is that uh, the USDA... Um, have made a vaccine um, which we which we can use in Vietnam, and so what I'm trying to do is to work with the uh, guys um, in Vietnam to get the American vaccine, and then gain some experience myself with uh, using this vaccine. One of the challenges that you're finding when you go to these different countries, the credibility behind the vaccines that that are candidates. So one of the problems we've got is that there's 24 different types of ASF and the immunity between the different types is very poor. So one of the problems that we've had as veterinarians is it's a bit like influenza. We've probably been trying to make a vaccine against everything and that has proven to be extremely difficult or stroke impossible as it is still with influenza. So with the, the type two that we have that is causing this pandemic around the planet, 
we can actually just focus on one particular virus. Um, now, and so we, we have a variety of these attempted vaccines um, strains. Um, the problem that we have with them is that they tend to revert back to virulence. The virus also, the vaccines have to be live. Um, dead vaccines seem to do nothing, nothing at all. So that automatically provides a, p- provides a problem because I'm not going to use it on my nucleus farms. I'm not no. deliberately going to give a farm ASF. Yeah. Uh, so one of the reasons I'm here is to look at, um, unfortunately, the Vietnamese uh, industry is being severely hit by African swine fever. So it is now wall to wall. So many, many farms are positive. And we are trying to farm it, uh, which again is different from the way that Europe or um, the United States or Canada would tackle this problem, at least in initially, where, where the approach is to depopulate and start again. Here, the problem is that um, if I depopulated, where would I buy my gilt from? Because um, everything's positive. Without them being positive. Uh, yeah. And that, so one of the farms I work with here is they, they we did a partial depop, um, and we think we eliminated the virus, but then we brought in some boars that were supposed to be free, but I don't think were. And that then took the farm out again. Um, see, one of the problems with African swine fever is that, and it seems a bit of a funny thing for a vet to say, one of the problems with African swine fever is about 30% of the pigs actually survive. Mm. I think, well, isn't that a good thing? The trouble is they survive and then they are, there's a potential of them carrying the virus for life. Um, so they now look healthy and you think that they've recovered and everything else is fine. Or maybe they didn't get sick to start off with. Um, but you think that they're fine, but uh, they're not, they're actually carrying the virus. And then when they move to another farm, um, they can carry the virus with them. And then any pig that is on that farm that is susceptible, um, has a 70% chance of dying. Now the vaccines that I've worked with in China, um, are causing me a lot of problems and to the point where it's almost more, when I go to a farm that's broken with African swine fever, it's probably broken with a viral strain rather than the field strain. And the virus, the viral strain, the, the vaccine strain, I should say, um, it still kills pigs, but it only kills say 10, 15% of them. Well, that's kind of better than the 70% that the field virus kills. So in some respects, the, vi- the vaccine then becomes used because it's better than, the, than nothing at all. Um, oh. But for me as a veterinarian, losing 15% of my pigs is still too many. Yeah. Um, and it's the, devast- it's the hole it creates in production and everything else is, is difficult. So sadly, at the moment, my answer would be we don't have a vaccine. We have some promising candidates um, but unfortunately, we also have a little bit like the Wild West. So in China, they unfortunately, some producers have brought in a vaccine candidate from Portugal um, from the 1980s. Um, but this vaccine, A, didn't work in Portugal, but B, is also the wrong type. It's the wrong strain of ASF. So now when I'm in China, I'm worrying about ASF type 2 field strain, ASF type 2 vaccine, of which there could be a couple, and then ASF type 1 vaccine. 
these are getting it's getting very complicated. So how are things evolving in China? And I know it might be very tough, but that's on a lot of people's minds because not a lot of people have been there since pre-COVID. Um, and neither have I either. Um, I, I have friends, I have clients there, and, and as we've done in um, with COVID, we do a lot of communication through Zoom and um, within video conferencing. So I have my local vets um, who will then video pigs and show me their pigs. Now, most of the people that I deal with are the nucleus farms, and so we don't have African swine fever. But obviously, we understand the local situation. You know, the, the guys will talk about the local situation. Um, and in some respects, I mean, the Chinese are recovering. Um, the price is recovering. Um, I do worry that while China's recovered her sow inventory, the quality of the sows is just not going to be there because we were using basically anything that there was a finishing pig, if it was female, and alive. Um and it's going to take a, a decade or so to recover her genetics. Um, but uh, it is, it is um, China is still an interesting place. But hopefully next year I can get there and actually go and visit my farms again. So with them breeding pigs in that way, what do uh, litter sizes look like? I mean, how, how, much, how far behind are they? Two, two, three. Oh, wow. I mean, you're back to the 1970s. Yeah. So the the Chinese were they never quite they never to my mind they never got twelve weaned. Um, they were getting there, uh, but they've probably gone back to nine and a half weaned. Um, but and then you can still lose fifteen percent if you're using these vaccines. But again, say my truth experience is is limited because the farms that I deal with are ASF negative and. Um, you know, we're still dealing with uh, purebred or, you know, nucleus farm level pigs. So yeah. the, the performance is still excellent. Um, we just, uh, but we're obviously worried about African swine fever all the time. What what genetic brands are, are would you say, oh, what global genetic brands tend to be the most successful in China right now? Um, well, it would be the same as everywhere else, to be honest. Oh, okay. I mean, PIC, Danbred, Topigs, Genesis. I mean, they are. And then then there's varieties of those that local boys have, they maybe bought some Genesis and some Topics. You know, they mix them up. Um, but if you if you walked into my farm in China, you would you could sink yourself back in Iowa. It's not a, it, it, there's not, not a great deal of difference. Um, and the expectation is the same. The, the, big num- the big thing you would find difficult to believe is the number of people working on the farm. How um, many is it? Oh, it's so I have a three thousand south farm, and they have seventy employees. You know, you said seventy. Yeah, and so I'm. De- I desperately try to get them down to fifteen, but they just cannot believe we could run a farm with so few people. Um, Holy but, cow! Yeah, well, yeah, but you see, that's how the farms would have been run in the fifties and sixties as well. I mean, the farm that I grew up on. 250 cell unit, there was five of us. Um, so yeah. that's one man for every 50 sows. Um, the Chinese are still probably at one man for every 20 sows. Um, where in the States would be at one man for 300 sows. Um, 
And it doesn't sound like that's translating necessarily into better proving mortality oh, never better does. performance. No, no. It, uh, to my mind, it never does. So the farms have, uh, that I'm, and in some respects, I would actually argue it's the opposite. The more people, the more biosecurity risks you have. Yeah. Um, and one of my, a guy who was very influential to me when I was younger is, is Al Lehman, who of my generation, uh, a lot of people, uh, he influenced a lot of people. Um, but I might have been a little unusual being European um, to think that Al was uh, talking to myself. So anyway, um, Al used to laugh at me because I used to go on and on about stopmanship. And he'd said, over time, John, you'll realize that we need to get people off farms. Um, and I thought, you're crazy. You know, we've got to have people on farms. You know, we've got to, you know, we've got to train people to look after the pigs and everything else. And to a point, I still think I'm right, but I know that he's right. Um, increasingly, I go, well, I don't have the people. I mean, I'll maybe saw it coming. Um, the reality is that you go to Iowa, how many people actually want to work with the pigs? I mean, not very many, and I, even fewer even know that that's a career path. And and so we employ great guys from Philippines and Mexico. Um, but that, that pool of people will also dry up. Um, so increasingly, as sad, almost as sad as it is, I try to design farms that have less and less people. Um, so I, I want to employ professionals. I don't want to employ laborers. I think that's the difference. And the, a lot of Asians, the, the people working on the farm are still laborers. They're still sweeping the passageways. They're still hand-feeding the pigs. Um, and we need to move away from that, or they need to move away from that as well. On that note, it's actually a very fascinating component of where our industry has has arrived over the last five years or so. But a producer in Australia might actually be competing for the exact same labor as a producer in Iowa. When we think about the Philippines Absolutely. and immigrant labor, this yep. is global competition for talent. Yep. Absolutely. The uh, Australian industry uh, actively, um, we have some great Filipinos. And if it wasn't for them, uh, the industry would be faltering. Um, and then I go to, I do a lot of work in Canada. Uh, so I go to Alberta and I walk onto a farm and who do I see? You know, a friend from um, Angeles. <laughs> oh. And he talks to me about his brother who knows me on this farm outside Perth. You know, and you go, yep, I know him well. The world's getting small, especially you know, in the swine then, industry. In the swine industry. And then I could go to England and meet, this, meet another brother. Just, it's, it, in some respects, it's actually, it, for me, it's actually fantastic because, because I actually do wander <laughs> around the planet. You meet all these people. Um, it's like you and I meeting in, in, you know, in, the, in the middle of nowhere in Australia. I mean, uh, but the, the world is very, is, for us, the world is very small. And as you said, your labor pool is very small. Um, but again, the global industry, we maybe need to be thinking about where do we place our educational resources? Maybe we should be placing our resources not in Ames, but actually in, um, um, in Manila or something. That's um, a really good point. You know, I mean, um, if that's where the, you know, if Asia, if Asia is going to be the supplier of, of our professional stock people, um, 
you know, wh- where are, where do we place our training? Yeah, because when we think about other international certifications, they're, they're never quite given the same level of, oh, credibility from a perspective mm-hmm. standpoint. So you might have somebody who graduates as a veterinarian in Mexico, but isn't necessarily coming on farms in the U.S. serving as a veterinarian. Yeah. So if we can think more globally around our education programs, we might actually be able to widen that pool and yeah. find more confidence in the people we're hiring. Yeah. And certainly I'm doing that with, I've got a couple of lads in, um, well, actually in, in Australia who are exactly that. They are veterinarian, they're Filipino veterinarians. Um, but I actually know, I know them, I know them as veterinarians in the Philippines. And then they've come over to Australia and they're working as a farm manager. Um, and now we're putting together a program where they can become uh, qualified veterinarians in Australia um, because we're short of swine vets in Australia, you know, and these guys are quite competent as swine vets. Um, we just need to certify them to satisfy the, the veterinary college. But yes, I, I, I agree with you. Where else do you think the industry is headed over the next 10 years? What do you think are some of the, going to be some of the bigger developments? Sounds like a continually shrinking labor pool is one of them. What else? Well, I'm, I think I actually have seen the future of the, of the industry. And I, I know I've talked this on a couple of other podcasts. So going back a little bit in time. So I come from a very large farm in the UK, 250 South. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I was given the opportunity in, nine, in late 80s to go and take a job in North Carolina State. And uh, I walked straight into Carroll's and Murphy's and Goldspring, Goldspring and Prestige. 2,000, 3,000 South Farms, which blew my mind away. Because I'm like, what? You know, these are 10 times bigger than anything I'd ever dealt with before. <laughs> but you're looking at poultry producers who are pig farmers, who, who have become pig farmers. And for a poultry producer, who the hell would have 200 chickens? I mean, if you're going to have chickens, have 20,000 of them. You know, you just don't, don't mess around. And so that concept, the North Carolina boys really changed the whole concept of pig farming. We went away from family farms into these integrated um, three-site systems. um, And the Chinese, in some respects, have taken some of that forward. So one of my clients in China has a million sales. I mean, that's five times the whole of the Australian industry owned by one company. Yeah, it's Um, crazy. And and the United States have um, similar. I mean, look at Smithfield. and, And again, you talk about people being global, but I mean, pigs now are global. And a pig in Romania, its feet could end up in China. Its ears end up in Kenya. It's, it's, you know, its belly ends up in, you know what I mean? It, the, 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 the product we have is also broken down into, um, into a global product. So I think you've got to combine a lot of this. Where, where is the tomorrow's industry going to go? And I think tomorrow's industry, the one problem we're short of is people. or We are short of people. We're short of land. We have an image problem. Um, we've got a planet that is going to have another 3 billion people uh, before we, we slow the human race down. So we're going to need another billion pigs in order to feed that extra 3 billion people. Where are we going to put it? You know, these 3 billion people are going to eat soya. They're going to eat corn. Um, so we're going to have to figure out how to feed the pigs and feed the poultry that we're going to need to feed the people. So I think 
one of the aspects of that is probably insect farming. We're going to have to think about how to farm insects to provide protein, a protein resource for our uh, pigs and poultry, and probably fish. On a landmass point of view, you look at an an Iowa farm, you know, or North Carolina Iowa farm. I mean, in two dimensions, they spread out a long way. Well, the farms that we're building now in China are three dimensional, multi story pig hotels, um, big ones too. Interesting. The, the biggest I've worked with is 15 stories. Um, yeah. Certainly, well, the one that I've worked with a fair amount is actually five. Um, but the, the modern ones are 15, and then the ones they're building at the moment are about 26. Um, but I also think they're actually building them in the wrong place. So the, the Chinese look at me, they think I'm crazy. I mean, you have to wonder. Um, so they're building the buildings in, in mountains because they can sort of hide them and the land is cheap and everything else. But I've argued opposite. What we should be doing is building these pig farms. I think we should be building these pig farms in, in a port. A lot of our stuff, if we're looking at the global market. So where we put the pigs in Iowa, because that's where the corn is. Well, actually, if we put the pigs in the port, then that's where the export is. That's where the chips are. We bring food in, we bring cheap food in, we can take the meat out. If we do um, multi-story pig farming in in a port, the one thing that ports and cities have are people. Nobody's, who the hell's going to go to a mountain? You know, you might live an hour away, but you're not going to find labor. Um, but if you put the put the building in, a, in the edge of the city, um, you're going to have a lot of labor, uh, which is able to, to work on your farm. You may have to have more shift work and more part-time. Uh, um, I don't know. The the other big thing of, I think about putting it in a, in a port is you've got good road infrastructure. So you can take your products in, you can take your products out. And if you build a farm in the city, it already has a slurrage system. Because one of the big issues with all of this is removing uh, manure uh, from the farm and also bringing water to the farm. But I think I think the future, one future of um, the pig industry is going to be three dimensions. Um, build them straight up. That's and going to be very I, interesting to see how that works long term, too. It's going to be the, very interesting to see. The arbitoir the, and the packer and all that stuff's on the basement floor, the base floor. Isn't that already? Oh, well, site? the base floor would be restaurants. Really? Because that's that street, that street front. So you're going to have to have that's expensive. Then the short floor above is a, is a supermarket. All underneath of the pigs. And then the floor underneath that could be the slaughterhouse. It's all moving down. And then Man, you, that's you, an, that, that's fa- that'll be a fascinating world. But the big issue is that ASF transmits three meters. Well, if the pigs are already 10 or 15 meters off the ground, you've improved your biosecurity straight off. Interesting way to look at it. If you, yeah. and then what do you want w- windows for? I mean, if you, if the the pigs never see the sunrise, do they realize they live on a planet? <laughs> I mean, why? So what I'm trying to do is figure out how to get pigs to farm themselves effectively, um, because I don't think a lot of pigs don't really understand what we do anyway on a farm. I think. Um, I mean, most people live in a passageway, which I think is a waste of space, but whatever. And I often wonder where pigs even realize we have legs. 
because all he ever do is see a chest and a head walking up and down this passageway. You know, you can see two pigs talking to each other saying, that head's back. Yeah, I know. doesn't do anything. just walks up and down. I mean, the machine feeds the pigs. The head never enters the pen. Pigs are probably quite puzzled what this head does, walking up and down. <laughs> it's just, it's just, a, it's just a visualization, isn't it? Of actually, yeah. I do that when some of my farms. If I'm, if I've got a problem with stockmanship, I actually would get in the pen and kneel on the floor. So all you see is my head, you know. And you see that you can imagine the guys in the passageway. There's six guys, a couple of vets, manager, and they go, "This is all the pigs see. This head moving backwards and forwards." You know? But is that where's the stockmanship? You know. But uh, yeah, then I think then I worry they might get the people in white coats to take me away. You know, just to... <laughs> <laughs> now that will be interesting, and it, it is fascinating to see how things are are developing. And I think once once we're able to travel more, yeah. and we're able to have individuals regularly be able to go and visit these pig hotels, we can call them. I think we might learn a lot real quick. Well, I, see, I think that the revolution that occurred in the 80s and 90s in Iowa, in North Carolina, really, because I would argue that the Iowa pig farmers at that point were still European family farms. Yeah. Um, but the revolution... They kind of adopted that model. Yeah. yeah. The revolution that occurred in North Carolina um, in the late 80s, early 90s, and that has gone around the world... Um, I, I think that the next revolution is probably these some version of these multi-story buildings, um, much more much more uh, internet-driven, um, you know, a lot more AI uh, and all this. Um, yeah, but I can see I can see um, pigs, poultry, fish, insects all being farmed in the same building. Um, That'd be a thing. Huh. Or maybe just two or three floors in a in an apartment blocks taken out for the farm. I could um, see that with insects and get some black soldier flies or some other solutions yep. there uh, within the same. Yeah, I mean, grow your food. Yeah, right. But there. it's almost like hydroponics, you know, in terms of um, growing tomatoes and some lettuce and you know some of our our vegetables. Um, I mean, a lot we we've accepted that some plants don't need to hit the ground. Um, I don't know. I mean, how much of it is just futuristic? Um, but but as much as we um, as much as we we think about things, we're going to have ten billion people to feed, and we've got global warming. We've got reduction, uh, deforestation. We've got um, biodiversity loss, and I think that the pig hotel could be a farming answer to a lot of those questions. Um, we could release a lot of land back to nature. Um, but we've got to put people somewhere. Yeah. Um, but the next 25 years, because this population of, of a nine and a half, 10 billion will be reached by about 2050. Now, after 2050, our population of, of primates, two-legged humans, will actually drop. Um, and so in some respects, our, you know, we will have resources spare in 2060, 2070. But the question that the mankind has, and I, th- I honestly do think this is the almost the most critical moment we've got, uh, we've had in the last, say, 10,000 years of farming. In 
in the next 25 years, we're going to reach a peak of, of mankind on this planet. And farming has created this problem, and farming has to answer the problem. Um, once we s slow our numbers down, we will have enough food. But we've got to feed ourselves up to this 10 billion people. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the next 25 years is probably the most exciting um, for, for farming than we've had in the last five or 10,000 years. Uh, and that seems like a big statement. I mean, if you think about what's happened since the World War, since the beginning of the, of the 19th, uh, 20th century, you know, farming has increased its output by 10 times or whatever. Well, yeah. to my mind, what we did in the last 100 years, we've got to do in the next 25. Which and the question seems is, like a tall uh, order and is a tall order, but with the, the progression well, that we've seen in technology and everything else, it, it's possible. It's, well, well uh, I hope so, because if not, we're going so. to have hungry people. Yeah. Um, but to my mind, when, when I get young veterinarians um, saying, you know, is there a future in pig farming? I mean, my, I'm like, what? I mean, what? Seriously? There's going to be almost double the, the industry we have today. Uh, she's got to be a lot more productive. She's got to re reduce her feed wastage. She's got to control her pathogens. We have a, a population to feed. Yeah. We're, we're responsible for feeding half this planet every single day. And poultry is a competitor, but on the other hand, it's also a, it's also part of the answer. I mean, we need to work with poultry. Um, but you look at the you look at poultry, pigs, poultry, feedlots, fish. We have ten. We're going to have ten billion people to feed. We've got eight billion people now. I mean, to put it into some perspective, Matthew. I mean, I'm 63. The population on this planet has doubled in my lifetime, and will treble when I uh, cast off this mortal coil. It's that, I think, is a challenge. And people say to me, why do you want to be a food animal veterinarian? And I'm like, what? <laughs> Enjoy feeding people. And we've got no to feed No shortage people. of challenges, yeah. You know, there's a lot of... I, and, and I look, when I talk to my farmers, I always refer to, you know, we've got kids to feed. That's our job. When the people say, well, are you producing food? I say, no, I'm producing food for kids. We've got to have clever kids uh, who can answer these questions. And that's the, that's the purpose of pigs. Uh, we've got to preserve the species, but we've got to feed this planet. Well, thank you, John, for joining us in the Popular Pig Podcast. I think that's a great place to stop off here. And it's just fascinating to see where things, or even just to think about where things yeah. could be and where things are. And so thank you very much for joining as a guest. No, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, Richard and Matthew. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.